Good morning. morning. Let's begin class with prayer, please. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you so much for your kingdom of truth. We ask that your spirit of truth and love will be poured out into our hearts and minds. Let us grow close to you. Let us have greater appreciation for the victory of Christ and give us more effectiveness in how we take this message to the world. And we pray in your holy name. Amen. So we're doing lesson 13 in the quarterly education. And the title this week for the lesson is Heaven, Education, and Eternal Learning. Doesn't that sound exciting? As an adult, it sounds awesome. If I had heard that in high school, I'd have gone, oh. <laughs> I've grown up since then. So this sounds exciting uh, to think about uh, eternal. Don't you love that title? Yes, it's great. And so the memory text is out of 1 Corinthians 2.9, which says, I have not seen nor ear heard nor entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. The lesson points out in the second paragraph that education, regardless of the field of study, should be preparing us for the hereafter. Education should be preparing us for the hereafter. How do we prepare for the hereafter. Being healed today. Being healed, he said. What is the most important thing? We're talking about education, about learning, eternal learning. What's the most important thing to learn to be prepared for the hereafter? Know the real character of God. Oh, okay, both of you. Oh, beautiful. Yes. The third paragraph says, after all, any school can pass on a lot of good information, a lot of good practical and helpful knowledge. But what good does it do a person if a person were to gain all the knowledge and yet lose eternal life? And so the most important thing, John 17, 3, that you guys are both referencing. Now, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So the most important is the knowledge of God. But what kind of knowledge is this? Experiential. You know, I've uh, presented this, and some say, well, the devil, the, the demons, the fallen angels, Satan, they know God. I would counter, and you should be prepared to counter, that they recognize the person of God, whether it's Jesus or the Father, but they actually no longer know him. They have corrupted their minds, They have corrupted their knowledge of God with their own lies and distortions and their own selfishness and their own fears so that what they think they know about God is actually not true about God. They do not know him. Evidence in Scripture. Evidence in Scripture. James 2.19, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Why do they tremble? Is God... Against them. They tremble for the same reason that Adam and Eve trembled and were afraid. Many Christians, of course, think that God is against them. And the Bible does talk about Satan is an enemy. There's a war between God and Satan. So there is a certain aspect of this in which they're against them. Uh, a certain, uh, many Christians will, will then Read this idea of being against, uh, being enemies through the lens of human laws and human systems and human power and think, therefore, and human judicial action and therefore think, therefore, righteous judge God must use power to punish evil, rotten enemy Satan. And that's why they're afraid because they know one day he's going to set them down. He's going to hold them accountable. He's going to get them for what they've done. I'm looking forward to being on that wall and making him pay. But they might even use quotes like this to support their theory. This is Bible, Mark chapter 5, 1 through 7. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. The man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but tore the chains apart and broke the irons on on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When... He saw Jesus from a distance. He ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. And, of course, this is Legion speaking, not the man. Did this demon 
fear Jesus? Yes, he did fear Jesus. Did he need to fear Jesus? Did he need to fear Jesus? Is Jesus the source of pain, suffering, and death? Are you hearing me? Is Jesus the kind of person or being who will torture his enemies? Or did Jesus say love our enemies and pray for those who spitefully use us? Then why is this demon afraid of Jesus and begging him not to torture him if Jesus is not the one who is the source of pain, suffering, and torture? Ah, because the demon's mind is so corrupted from years of violation of God's design laws, so many lies, so much selfishness himself, that he no longer, he recognizes the person of Jesus, but he no longer knows Jesus. This demon is like all those who reject truth. Get your mind around what I'm going to teach you here now. This is about how reality works. This is about human people now. Those who reject truth damage their own mind. They lose the ability to know reality. And in this case, they no longer know God as they reject the truth about God. They see God through their own false ideas. The demons are the ones who teach that God is the punisher. God as an inflictor of pain and torment, that God makes up laws that are like human laws and must punish rule breakers. Demons are the one who originated that. That's their view. That's why they see God this way. They deny and distort the true cause, the true cause of their suffering, which is, what's the true cause? Sin in them. Sin in them. And project it out, blaming God. And we see this in sinners who are not responding to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth, who Jesus said, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will do something. He will convict you of sin. When you respond to the Spirit of truth, what's that response do to you? Hey, I'm a sinner. Hey, I'm sick in heart. Hey, I'm out of harmony. God, I'm broken. I'm sick. I need healing. I'm convicted of my need. That's what the spirit of truth does. If we respond to the truth, we own it. That's me. That's on me. I did that. And I did that because my heart's sick. That's what the spirit of truth does. Yes. But if you reject the spirit of truth, you don't respond to the spirit of truth. Notice those who are saved have committed sin. They just respond to the spirit of truth and they own it. That's me. That's from my sick heart. Uh, created me a clean heart, oh God, uh, because my heart is sick. That's, that's, so it's not that the, the righteous who respond to the truth haven't sinned. They have. But they respond to the spirit of truth, own it, recognize God is trustworthy, and ask him to come in with a new heart and right spirit and fix it. The wicked, on the other hand, are like the demons. The unrepentant. The spirit of truth comes and tries and brings conviction. But what do they do when the spirit of truth comes? Deny and distort. It wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me at that moment. Adam was not responding to truth. He was resisting truth. Now, resisting and ultimately surrendering, we've all maybe resisted some, but the Holy Spirit brings and we don't sleep well, and we wrestle, and, and eventually those of us who've responded have surrendered to the truth. But just because we resist it doesn't mean we've hardened our hearts, okay? There has to be a rejection over and over again, like Pharaoh, over and over again rejected. That's why his heart got hard. Okay? So this is what happens. The spirit of truth comes, brings conviction. They won't own it. It wasn't me. There's some other reason. It's not me. And I see this in sinners all the time um, who won't respond to the spirit of truth, thus they sear their conscience and harden their hearts. I see this in addicts who've been arrested, not just for their addiction, but for the crimes that they've done to pay for their drugs, like check fraud, shoplifting, theft, breaking and entering, and on and on. And then they get arrested, and then they complain how they were mistreated. They'll focus on some point of contention, like, it isn't fair. I couldn't afford a lawyer, and the state appointed a lawyer wasn't very good, and if I'd had a good lawyer, I wouldn't have gone to jail. And I say to them, so you're saying you're innocent. You didn't actually steal that car. Well, that's not the point. 
I didn't deserve it because the system is rigged. The system is against me. It's unfair that I didn't uh, didn't get to get a better lawyer. If I had more money and could hire a better lawyer, I wouldn't have gone to jail. It wasn't about my crime. It was about the system that's against me. You hear this all the time. No sense of, hey, you know what? That's on me. I did steal that car. Lord, there's something broken in my heart. I need it fixed. There's no repentance. There's denial, distortion, externalization, find someone else to blame. And as uh, people commit more sin and refuse to repent, they damage their faculties and their minds become less and less responsive to the spirit. They sear their consciences is what the hot iron Paul says. Understand that you can't heal a person physically outside the laws of health. And if they continue to violate the laws of health, they only get worse. You can't heal a heart and mind of anyone in violation of truth. If they don't love truth, if they reject truth, if they cling to their own lies, distortions, in order to avoid the reality of their own condition, there is no healing them. Christ's death has no value to them. It can't help them until they're willing to be truthful. That's why those who don't love the truth are given over to strong delusion to believe a lie. God doesn't make them delusional. But when you deny truth over and over again, the only thing left for your mind are falsehoods, and you become fixed on the falsehoods, and a fixed false belief, when you're fixed in a false belief, that's a delusion. They fix themselves in false belief systems. They become delusional. That's the design law, unavoidable consequence to resisting the spirit of truth. This is why the demons don't know God. Demons are even more damaged in mind than many human beings because they've been persisting in their rebellion and and violation of God's laws even longer than any human, so they're even more deeply embedded into the lies. But if we don't know God... If we believe the lies that have been told to us about God, then we will also be afraid of God. But when we know him, we don't have fear of him. So I will read to you a story out of Exodus chapter 20. God comes down to Sinai. God thunders at Sinai. Moses is standing there. All the children are afraid. Moses says, so it says, when they, um, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at distance and, and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Why was Moses not afraid and the people were? He knew God personally, intimately, as a friend. Moses knew God's character, his heart, his methods. He knew God was not their enemy. Moses knew God's love and that God wanted to heal and protect protect the people from the damage they would do to themselves if they chose to violate his design laws. They were like little children who the parent is saying, don't you go out on the street or I'm going to spank you. The Lord, you don't need to be afraid of. You don't need to be afraid of that parent. That parent is is come to instill fear in you so that you won't kill yourself by getting hit by a car. Hold on. You see, those people that were afraid, they didn't know God. They knew about God. They knew about him. They knew God was powerful. They knew he just over uh, through the Egyptian armies and all the plagues and stuff. He did. They knew, but they didn't know his heart. They didn't know his character. They didn't know his love. They didn't know his methods. They had their minds. They knew, they knew he was real, but they didn't know him. And if you know God's real, but you don't know him, they knew he was powerful, right? Then you're afraid of him. Yes, Wendell. story that you referenced to Exodus 20, verse 21, but the people continued to stand a long way off. Only Moses went near the dark cloud where God was. The friend went toward the friend. Other instances, Adam and Eve, other instances, people fled when they saw God. Moses went toward it. Satan is the originator of the lies about God, which are centered in God's law. That's the centering of the lies. 
Satan is the one who made up the lie that God's law functions like human law, and God, therefore, in order to be just, must punish sin. And as he believes it, and all his little demons believe it, then they say things like we read in, in Mark, have you come to torture us? This is out of the book called Desire of Ages, page 761. You've heard it before, but it's so well said, I just have to read it again. In the opening of the great controversy, in heaven, in the opening, when it began, Satan had declared, notice, a declaration, a proclamation, a statement, rhetoric, words, not evidence. That's what Satan has. You will see this happening in society all the time. I have watched it this last couple of years. Rhetoric, words, declarations without evidence. In fact, contrary to evidence. The evidence refuse it, but people still like the words. What's the Bible say at the end of time? They will put people ahead of them. They will speak little things their ears like to hear. Boy, if you don't see this happening, you have no discernment at all. It's happening all over the place. Satan declared that the law of God could not be obeyed. This is what he, the law of God could not be obeyed. It's a declaration. That justice was inconsistent with mercy. And that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth. And justice. Do you understand this entire thing as a declaration from Satan, and it's a lie, and it is the core theology of essentially the entire Christian world? Satan's lie. God makes up law. God, in order to be just, must punish lawbreakers. If he doesn't punish lawbreakers, he's not just. Therefore, he sent his son, put all the sins on his son, punished Jesus in our place, and that serves his justice and also shows how loving and merciful he is. This whole penal substitution thing, it's a sham based on the lie of the devil from the beginning. And we still teach that if you don't, and if you don't accept the payment, then what God will do to you? Justice requires that he, he, he'll cry when he does it, of course, because he loves you, but he will use his power to torture. Just like the demons, you come to torture me? Our enemy is not sin in our lives. Our enemy is God who will punish you for it. This is the lie of Satan. God, at this time in human history, is calling for his friends like Moses who know him to give him glory by revealing the truth about his character in the way they live. We are to enlighten the world with this glorious truth of God's character of love and that there's no need to be afraid of God. Perfect love casts out all fear. He is our creator and savior and source of life. We need to fear the sin which destroys and severs our connection with him. We don't need to fear the savior who died to eradicate the sin. So it's time in human history to, for people, this is part of that message, that God is like, and it's time in human history to make a right judgment about God. Stop seeing his, him as an imperial dictator and see him as creator and worship him who made the heavens and the earth and whose laws of the laws of reality are built upon. But until we reject the imperial penal legal lie, we will never truly know God. We will know about him. We may believe in him. But our knowledge of him is warped, our intimacy is obstructive, and our effectiveness is undermined. We will actually work against him as we tell people they better repent because Jesus is coming. And if you don't have your sins paid for, and Jesus will step out of his intercessory role, and he'll stop pleading his blood to the Father on your behalf, and the Father will have to kill you for your sins, so you better love him. Really, people. No wonder people go, your, your religion's just disgusting. This is that what I just said is not the message. It's the lie. And this is what many people are doing, claiming that they know God. They don't know him at all. The knowledge you want is what Wendell said earlier. It's experiential, not factual, not simply facts. Facts of history that, that God has revealed through Christ are, su- are sufficient and needed to win us to see that God isn't like Satan has revealed him to be. We have enough evidence from history to win us to trust and we open our hearts, but then we have to come in and experience him personally. We have to have intimacy with God okay? in our hearts, a personal connection where we walk with him and talk with him and we share our day. We rejoice, we admire, we consult, we behold, and by beholding we become changed. 
understanding the difference be, uh, between all this, recognizing the person of God versus actually knowing him. And you understand those? To, oh, yep, yeah, that's God. The devil saw it and trembled, but they didn't know him. Recognizing the difference gives insight into some things that could appear superficially contradictory in the Bible, like Jesus saying to Nicodemus in John 3, 3, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And Jesus later saying at his, at his trial to the people who were uh, crucifying him, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Or how Revelation says, look, he is coming in clouds and every eye will see him, including those who pierced him. Only the, those born again will see the kingdom of God. Yet here, clearly, those who are his enemies see him coming at the second coming, sitting at the right hand of power. It could appear contradictory, couldn't it? Unless you understand. These people see with their physical eyes the power and person of Jesus coming in glory. They do not see the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is not a kingdom of power and might that causes fear and intimidates or others to cower or causes people to feel coerced. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of truth and love. And that's why Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. They don't see it. They see an enemy that they want to hide from, that they see is coming to torture them. That's not God's kingdom. They see the power and might, but they don't see the kingdom. So the most important knowledge to prepare for heaven is the knowledge of God. His character and methods of love, which require we reject the imposed law lie with its false penal views and make God that make God out to be the dispenser of pain, the inflictor of punishment, and the source of death. Sunday's lesson, the title is The Fate of the Dead. What would you say to someone who is not a Christian or maybe um, a nominal Christian? They kind of are generally, well, I like, you know, I, I was raised a Christian. I just don't go anywhere. They're kind of, you know, very distant uh, kind of Christian in general view. I'm, I'm not a Buddhist. I'm, I guess I'm a Christian, but they don't really have any, you know, knowledge of the Bible. What would you say to anybody like this who asks you what happens when people die? I get asked a lot because I deal a lot with grief in my office. What happens when people die? Most, actually, people, many people have a, a, a fantasy about it. When I say fantasy, they have a belief that is not actually based in evidence. Magical thinking. Magical thinking. And it's all types. And I will tell you that the, the beliefs that people have are very much today influenced by movies like Ghost, uh, other movies in which the spirits float around, interact, talk to, and spiritualism in, in through, through the media. A lot of people's beliefs are, are influenced by that. Supernatural type things. So what would you say? You drew the distinction a few weeks ago between practitioners who will support the person in their current belief and maybe go as far as you can to be in the same plane with them as opposed to... Okay, so we're not talking practitioners. I, I mentioned that I do that. I'm just saying you're out there and somebody asks you. Okay, I'm not talking about you're a clinician. I just mentioned that I get asked this a lot. But I'm, I'm asking you, you're out. You're in the supermarket. You're, you're someplace where a person can actually communicate to you even though they're seven or eight feet away. And, uh, and they ask you... You can't read their facial expressions. Yes. And you and they ask you what happens uh, when, when someone dies. What do you say? Okay, so I love the approach. Her, yeah, I know where you. We're going to come to your in just a second. But she, her first, her first approach is it's a very wise approach. Assess where they're coming from. Well, what's your understanding? You know, tell me, tell me what you believe happens when someone dies. I'd love to under. I'll share with you my thoughts. But but what are your current understanding? and get their perspective, that will give you a platform on what angle to bring the truth at them. Okay? Um, have any of you had this conversation with anybody? And if you ask them, well, what do you believe? What kind of answers are common? Do you get a, a precise and 
and uh, and a a uh, a, a well thought out answer. You often get something that's kind of uncertain. I I I don't really. I've heard this. I've heard that. I'm not sure what. The, there's a lot of views. I I'm not really sure. That's why I'm asking. Uh, what do you get? Like this, this is what I believe. I know. I know this is what happens. No, you get a lot of uncertainty, don't you? Typically, that's what you get. A lot of people want to know, but 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 they don't know. So what do you do next? Okay, I, I'm not sure. I've heard I've heard people die either go to heaven or hell, but that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Or I don't want to think about that. Uh, that's scary. Um, uh, and so you've got an answer similar, general the heaven hell. I'm not sure, but. What do you what would, what would you say then? What's their source of authority? What will they believe? Um, they they really don't have an established one. They're and they're asking your opinion. They haven't established a source of authority. That's why they're in trouble. You understand most Christians will claim the Bible as their source of authority, but it doesn't function as a source of authority for them because they don't know their Bibles. Uh, I can see, I see this all the time. 99 people out of 100 in my office that identify as Christian and even are church attenders, when you begin to ask them Bible texts or Bible stories, 99 out of 100 don't know the, most of the basic Bible stories. They don't know who Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is. They don't, they don't know the story of Uriah and Bathsheba and David. Uh, they, they don't know. They don't know who these people are. I think Moses led the animals on the ark. Moses and the ark, yeah. I'm not kidding. No, no, that's common. That's common. So, so, so they they may say their Bible's the source of their authority, but they it, it would be like you know, be, they just have no knowledge. So, so what would you say to them? I, I found that the the atheists often believe that. It's this life and then... Oh. That's right. The atheists do. There's nothing. We're yeah, just done. He yep. doesn't live for today. He drink and be merry. That's right. Tomorrow we may die. That's correct. People who have no spiritual belief. Now, spiritual doesn't mean Christian. There's Buddhists and others that have other beliefs. Right. Okay. And then, then you have the, the reincarnation. Group. That's right. The Hindus, maybe. We don't have a lot of those around. Not a lot of those around here. But most of the ones around here are the Christian. The Christians that, yep. that either believe in a heaven, purgatory, and or hell. So the question <clears throat> that I haven't heard an answer for yet is when they ask you, and you've got to assess that they don't really know, they're, they're looking, they, they have a general Christian view, heaven, hell, floating around, whatever, but they don't know. What do you say? What happens to people die? What goes in the casket? What goes in the casket? I go to my own experience of losing my husband, and I just say what I tell them the story and what I believe, and then leave them free to decide on that. Okay, this is a very good approach. When when you connect your belief to your own loss, it's a very good approach because then you, then if they have a loss, they know you know what it feels like to lose somebody, and they know that you've struggled with the question, and your heart is ached, and they they're looking to see have you found some answer that has brought you peace that could bring me peace. So it really will intrigue them, and they will have an interest to know why this seems to work for you. So that's a very good approach. We haven't got to what you say, but the approach I like very much. Yes, I started thinking in terms of. How to respond based on design law. Okay. I like that. That's how I go, always. Okay. What I do is I, you have to, for me, what's effective in teaching and leading people is you have to connect them with something that they can connect to and make sense with. Something that's rational, that's logical, that they can comprehend. And so you know the metaphor that I use, and almost everybody in modern society understands it. And I connect that if they have a belief in the Bible. If they don't, I still use it, and it's still quite powerful. If they have a belief in the Bible, it makes it more powerful. And the metaphor is the metaphor of a, of a computer. Okay, According to Scripture, human beings, in order to answer the question, what happens at death, we have to have, know the nature of human beings. And, 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 the, and you understand that you're more than a physical body. Even people who don't believe in God understand that there's more there than just physical matter. Okay, for instance, your, if you use the computer metaphor, your memories. Your memories are not determined by physical matter. They're determined by life experiences. 
choices, um, abilities that you've developed. We are not programmed from birth to speak a particular language, for instance. That is from our environmental experiences that we learn a particular language or play a musical instrument or learn how to play a certain sport or learn different abilities, mathematics or reading. All these things that we learn through life are not pre-programmed in the biology. And that makes our minds unique. So we're more. So you can even point that out. So you have to understand the nature of, of what we are before you can actually decide and understand what happens when we die. And so according to Scripture, we have three parts. You know this, body, soul, and spirit. And computer have three parts, hardware, software, and energy. And you, I, go, I walk that through that. I, and people are quite fascinated when they understand that the Greek New Testament word for soul is psyche from where we get psychiatry and psychology. That's the actual word translated soul. But psyche, wow, we hear that different than soul. Soul sounds magical and mystical. Psyche sounds like your identity, and that's what the word actually means. It's your individuality, your identity, your computer software. The hardware is the machine. That's your body, your brain, your personhood, your identity, your memories. That's your software. That's your soul. That's your psyche, your individuality. And then the word for spirit they're also fascinated to learn is panuma, from where we get pneumonia. And it means breath, or breath of life, or wind. And it's the energy, the life energy. And so to have an operational computer, you just walk them through. You have to have a physical machine. You have to have the software, and you have to have electricity. You have to have all three, energy. Any two or three, it doesn't operate. It's, it doesn't work. Same thing with a living being, a human being. You have to have the physical matter formed out of the dirt of the earth, a body. You have to breathe in the breath of life, the energy, and then your identity, your individuality, who you actually are, your mind. And then you, once they get the computer analogy, say, when your computer runs out of power, not plugged in, battery dies, what state does it go? And they all go, sleep. It goes into sleep mode. What do you think the Bible describes as what we call death? Sleep. It's brilliant. And they get it. And then you give them the example of backing your computer up on a cloud and somebody destroys the machine, you're not worried because you have the data. You download into a new one. Jesus said, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body, the machine, but can't destroy the soul, the psyche, the software, your individuality. It's backed up on the heavenly servers, Lamb's Book of Life. It'd be downloaded. So you put all that together and then you read to them and then I will, if they want me to, share the text out of Thessalonians where Paul actually says this very thing. Don't be afraid of those who fall asleep and have no hope. And God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. Notice that. He will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. And the dead in Christ rise first. One text, dead people coming from two places, coming down from heaven with Jesus and coming up out of the grave in one text. Why? Because according to the scriptures, when we die, the body returns to dust. The energy, panuma, returns to God who gave it. And the software, the individuality, your soul, your identity, Your name, name is your character, your individuality, according to Scripture. Where is your name, according to Scripture, in the Lamb's Book of Life? It's a metaphor. It's a way. The Lamb's Book, it's not parchment. It's not lamb skin. It's some data storage system where your identities of people are kept. And God returns. He brings with him all those whose names, identities, individuality, psyche, souls, have been safe and secure with Jesus in heaven, downloads them into upgraded hardware. I'm so glad we get an upgrade. Breathe in the breath of life, and they live again. Resurrection. This is brilliant. And people, I tell you, people resonate with this when you pr- present it to them. And this is so much more profound and truthful and consistent with science than the Eastern philosophies. All the reincarnation philosophies, if you want to take them on, you can demonstrate this now. The Eastern philosophies used to think prior to our information technology advancements, prior to that, they used to poke at Christians because they would use the first law of thermodynamics. And the first law, and I've had this discussion with some many years ago, first law of thermodynamics is that energy is neither created nor destroyed, it is conserved. Uh, Meaning that um, energy, you can, it can change shapes and places, but the energy itself is conserved in a system. Everybody follow me with that? So you can take matter and you can turn it into a nuclear explosion. You didn't create energy. You released energy from where it was already stored in the matter. Okay, The energy is conserved. 
It's still there. So Eastern philosophies understand that when a person dies, the energy that was in their body is not destroyed. The energy is just reused in some other system, and so the energy comes back around. And therefore, they merge energy with individuality, and when the energy comes back around, so does the person who used that energy, and they're reincarnated, and they're reborn. As a rat. As a rat or whatever. Okay. The Bible, though, teaches completely different than Eastern philosophies. The Bible teaches the energy, panuma, the spirit, returns to God who gave it. Yes, the energy is conserved. It does not get destroyed. But your individuality is distinct and separate. It's software. And everybody who knows now information science understands electricity and information are not the same. And you can destroy information while you retain the electricity. And thus the Bible is much more scientifically accurate than the Eastern philosophies. They're not. Isn't that fascinating? Okay. So, what's the difference between the first death and second death? The first death is what we just described, what the Bible calls a sleep death. When the body dies, the individuality is still intact, safe and secure, the soul on the server is waiting download into a new body. Uh, the, the, uh, the first death is described for a couple of demarcators. I've got it in the notes, but I might progress a little bit through these notes here so we can get to more things in the lesson. There are several demarcators of first and second death. First death, there's a resurrection from. Second death, there is no resurrection from. First death destroys the body, but does not destroy the soul, the psyche, the individuality, Matthew 10, 28. Second death, not only is the body destroyed, but the soul, the psyche, the individuality is destroyed. First death has happened through history since Adam. Second death happens at the end of the thousand years. First death can happen in any means or fashion that destroys the body, whether it's in a fire, whether it's in a, uh, a puncture wound, whether it's in an accident, whether it is from a disease or just old age. First death can happen from anything that causes the body to cease working. Second death, specifically according to Scripture, happens in the lake of fire. In Revelation 20 and 21, the lake of fire is the second death. Yes? The lake of fire is the second death. That's the end of everything, but are the wicked alive when they go into the lake of fire? So, yes, they are. And um, we are about to, I was about to unpack that. Okay. And so the lake of fire is the place of the second death. And, and, and what is it? And it says that the grave in Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. Hades and the grave, or death itself. What is it that kills death? How can you kill death? What kills death? Think about killing would mean destroying it, right? That's what killing something, destroying. What destroys death? Life destroys death. Ah, and so this lake of fire is the fire that destroys death. Interesting. Well, what kind of fire would destroy death? Ah, the fire of God's life-giving glory. This is the fire that bays the whole earth. The earth becomes a fiery ball when God lives here, and it says the sun will no longer need to light the place because God's presence will be its light. And where is it that the fires of Revelation 14 happen where the wicked are tormented? The Bible tells you, right in the text, if you read, in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. And what does it say in, in Daniel chapter 7? That uh, when God takes his throne, it says rivers of fire will come out from him. Thousands and thousands and ten thousands and ten times ten thousands will stand in this fire. And what does it say that this fire does? Uh, excuse me, Hebrews twelve twenty nine. Our God is a consuming fire. You see, this is the fire of God's life-giving glory, which is the fire that consumes sin. Now, what is sin made out of? Is sin made out of molecules? If I, this, this, this podium made out of wood, when I, I'm holding it right now, am I holding a piece of sin? This is matter. This matter right here can do something we call combust. That's rapid oxidation. Oxygen molecules causing the matter to combust. We call that fire in normal language. If I burn this matter molecule, am I burning sin? See, this is where people get confused and read the Bible. They think that the fire that consumes sin is the fire of combustion. It is not. 
It is the fire that consumes sin. Sin is not made out of matter. What is, the, what is sin made out of? Two elements. Two elements of sin, according to Scripture. At its root, Satan is the father of lies. So one root element to sin is lies. Okay, and what is it that will burn out a lie? Truth. And the other root, when you believe the lies about God, what happens to the heart? We become selfish. Selfishness. What is it that burns out selfishness if it comes in? Love. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and love. And at Pentecost, when the Spirit came, they saw two streams of fire. Fires of truth and love. No one got consumed. No one got burned. So these are the fires of truth and love. What will happen to those, if you remember, we've already talked about in our lesson today, those who, are, who reject the spirit of truth, those who won't uh, allow conviction of sin, those who deny and distort, those who sear their conscience, harden their hearts, destroy the faculties in them that respond to truth and love, what will happen to them when they are bathed in infinite truth and love? Truth and love so overwhelming that their lies cannot hide them from truth and love anymore. And they have full awareness of their own selfishness, their own deceit, their own pain that they've caused others. And they not only have the, the lies they told themselves, they have awareness of what other people have suffered because of them. What will it be like for them? When they have infinite truth bearing it upon them, will they enjoy it? I'm so thankful for truth. Wailing and gnashing. Or will they be wailing and gnashing of teeth and agony and suffering? And what will they beg for? The Bible tells you. The mountains to fall on them and hide them from him who sits on the throne. Where does the suffering come from? Does it come from the flames of truth and love? No, we are going to live in those flames. It comes from unremedied sin in the hearts and minds of people. This is how reality works. So first death, I got a little bit off there, but it all ties together, is the sleep death. We all rise from it. Resurrection of life, resurrection of damnation. Second death is the death that occurs at the end of the thousand years when the wicked come into full experience of God's life-giving glory and they no longer want to live in his presence and they choose they choose to give their life back. I don't want to live here. This is not a universe that I want to be in. Now, some people say, well, what about Jesus? Didn't he die the second death? I want to just comment on this very quickly, and then I'm going to give you some quotations. Did Jesus die the second death? No. No. He defeated death. There's a big difference. What's the Bible say? He destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. Do you understand destroying death is different than dying the death? And we already said, if you define the terms, second death, death from which there is no resurrection. Did Jesus rise? Yes or no? Death which destroys your individuality, so it's gone as well as your body. Did Jesus rise this same Jesus, according to Scripture, that died? Was he the same person that died that rose again? Yes, he was. His individuality was not destroyed at the cross. Did he die in the lake of fire? In fact, if we understand what I just said about the fires of God's presence, had God unveiled his life-giving glory, and I will tell you, I'm not just declaring it, there's evidence of Scripture to prove what I'm telling you. Had God unveiled his life-giving glory upon Jesus, Jesus would not have died. Everyone else would have. How do I prove that to you? Well, what happened right before the crucifixion? The Mount of Transfiguration. And what do you think happened at the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus was bathed in life-giving glory. He was bright, radiating brighter than the sun. It harmed him not because there's no sin in him. This isn't declarative. It's evidence-based. That's how God works. And then for Jesus to complete his mission, and his mission was to come reveal the truth about God, take up humanity damaged by Adam's sin, subject to temptation, and he was tempted in every way just like we are yet without sin. And we are tempted when we're dragged away by our own evil desires, James chapter 1. So he took up a humanity that not only can be tempted from outside by the devil, but can be tempted by human passions and feelings. 
And in Gethsemane, you see the agony his own humanity tempted him with. And Jesus needed to destroy that infection that plagues us from the inside. You might call it the carnal nature. And thus he's tempted in every way just like we are. And at the cross, the only way for him to eliminate it was to die without using his power to save himself, to be tempted all the way up and to surrender in love, purging the infection and establishing a new humanity. Perfect love. This is what he chose as a human being to do. Now, Understand then why the Father's presence was withdrawn. They'll say, yeah, but he experienced the breaking up of the unity of his Father. Then that's the second death. Yes, he did experience the breaking up of unity with his, his Father. Why, though? God so loved the world that he sent his Son to die a, a legal payment so that the Father could be paid the price the Father needs so the Father won't kill you. That's what the Bible says? That's what people teach. It's a, it's a fraud. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. Who did he give his Son to? To himself, I give my son to me so that I can collect his blood payment. That's what they teach. It's a lie. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son to who? To the world. That's right. To all who will believe. He gave him to humanity. God was in the son, reconciling the world to himself. God and the son collaborated together with the plan to fix the sin condition in the human species to save the human race, to redeem us. That was a collaborative plan that they worked together to achieve. Thus, what's the only way for Christ to achieve it? Be born a, of a human, as, uh, as a human, live and develop a perfect human character, be tempted in every way just like we are, exercising human abilities no, no greater than what Adam had, and living a victorious life, being tempted up to the point of death and dying without using power to act selfishly, thus establishing a perfect, selfless, godly character as a human being, eliminating the infection of fear and selfishness. He had to die, the only way to achieve it. Well, what's the only way for him to die? The source of life has to let him go. If God doesn't surrender him, he can't die. He can't achieve the mission. So it's like, why did Jesus stay away from Lazarus for three days? Because Jesus was the conduit for God's life. And if he had gone to Lazarus before him, Lazarus would have gotten well and not died. He allowed Lazarus to die that death so that he could raise him and show his power over death. So the only way for Jesus to accomplish the mission was the collaborative work where the father and son voluntarily broke their connection for the son to achieve the mission of curing the thin problem. God did not do this because he was angry or wrathful, or mad, or upset, or put sins on Jesus and punish them fully. That's all fraudulent. He did this because he loved us so much that he gave his son to die for us, to be our remedy and our savior. It was a cooperative effort. It was only means necessary. This is how reality works. Okay, so did Christ die the second death? No, he destroyed the second death and brought life and immortality to light. Those who believe the penal lie get very agitated when I say that because in their view, if he didn't die the second death, then the payment or the penalty hasn't been paid. Therefore, we're all still guilty and we must pay the penalty. And then we would have to die. So that's why they get agitated. All righty. Um, at the end of the thousand years, putting all of it together, one of the founders of the Adventist Church wrote this in the book Great Controversy 664. Oh, so no, wait, let me, let me pause again. Some will say, okay, I get all that. It all makes sense. But why raise the wicked at the end of the thousand years? They're already dead. Why raise them to have to have the rocks and things fall on them to die anyway? It seems kind of cruel. We know they're lost. They're not going to be saved. Just leave them in the grave. It's much more merciful, right? No, there's a reason. God, God does not win by declaration. Satan is the declarer. Satan is the, the one who wants you to believe by proclamation. You should have discernment in the world today if you see world leaders proclaiming things but refusing to provide evidence. Okay. No, why does he raise them again? Because he doesn't win by proclaiming it to be so. He wins by revealing it to be so. And so he raises them, gives them freedom. And if you read the scriptures, the counts, at the end of the thousand years, the New Jerusalem, Jesus, and the saints all come down the, uh, with the holy angels, the unrepentant wicked who have been in the grave on that first death mode for a thousand years in their sleep mode, excuse me, are raised... They are uh, uh, to, to the earth, the New Jerusalem's on the earth, and it says in Scripture, a period of time goes by 
where they build implements of war. Interesting. So the New Jerusalem's on Earth, period of time goes by, unspecified period of time, and the entire time this is going on, uh, the gates of the New Jerusalem are open. They're not closed. Think that through. You're in the New Jerusalem. You've got a loved one who's outside with the wicked. Might you want your loved one saved eternally? Maybe you call out them. Maybe you make a big banner and hang it from the wall. Johnny, Jesus is awesome. Come on in. No matter what you do, will anybody outside come in? Why? Will there be angels with flaming swords barring the way? There will not. No one comes in. You may say, I just can't believe it. I can't believe it. With that much evidence, I knew when my Johnny died, I saw him, he said he gave his heart to the Lord before I died. I knew it. He loved you. I, he'd come in if he could see all this. Okay, he's out there. Call him. Jesus won't stop you from calling him. They won't come in. How could that be? Because it would be like this for them. Do you remember the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas, and David Koresh, and some of them believed he was the Messiah? Imagine you had a sister in the compound worshiping David Koresh, believing he's Jesus. And she's up on the wall of the compound, and she calls out to you and says, hey, come on in and worship him with me. He's awesome. Are you going in? I didn't see any heads nodding. You're all shaking your heads no. See, that's how every person outside the city will see us inside the city. They are so settled into the lie, no amount of truth has any impact on them. They won't come in. They won't come in. And so this quote, uh, this quote just simply says, uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Oh, I, I guess I need to read part of it. Now, the warriors and things, they, they lead a great, uh, Satan gets all of his mighty warriors together, and they lead a big uh, progression to attack the city. And when they advance in mass to attack the city, I'll pick it up here. By command of Jesus, the gates of the New Jerusalem are closed. If they're closed when the mass attacks, what position were they in before? According to this author, they were open up to that point. The armies of Satan surround to make ready for the onset. Now Christ again appears in view of his enemies far above the city. Upon fountain of burnished gold is the throne high and lifted up. Upon the throne sits the Son of God. And around him are the subjects of his kingdom. Power and majesty of Christ no language can describe, no pen portray. The glory of the eternal Father is enshrouding his Son. The brightness of his presence fills the city of God and flows out beyond the gates, flooding the whole earth with its radiance. Brightness, radiance, sun. The sun radiates brightness, okay? We might call that fire. But where does it flow first? Into the, Who's in the city? We get bathed in the fires before it flows out over the earth, understanding what will that reveal to all of us in the city. The same thing that's hitting them is hitting us. Are we harmed by it? No. What do we feel when when the truth and love flows over us? Joy, happiness, life, unimaginable depths of being loved. It's it's incredible. It's, It's life itself. It invigorates. Why is it important it flows on us first? Rather than it just flows straight on them. If it just flows straight on them without hitting us first, could we possibly perceive, well, there's a molecular structure change slightly different in that fire that causes them to suffer pain where we aren't suffering. Uh, Might we be vulnerable to misunderstanding if it just hit them and didn't hit us? Hitting us first, there's no confusion. We understand exactly what's happening. God is not hurting them. Sin is hurting them. Unremedied sin. Now I'm going to continue on. Uh, I'm going to read another section out of uh, Great Controversy. This is page 542. Could those who have uh, spent, could those whose lives have been spent in rebellion against God be suddenly transported to heaven and witness the high and holy state of perfection that ever exists there? Every soul filled with love, every countenance beaming with joy, enrapturing music and melodious strains rising in honor of God and the Lamb, and ceaseless streams of light flowing upon the redeemed from the face of him who sits upon the throne. Could those whose hearts are filled with hatred of God, uh, of truth, of holiness, mingle? With the heavenly throng and join their songs of praise, could they endure the glory of God and the Lamb? No, no. Years of probation were granted them that they might form characters for heaven, but they have never trained the mind to love purity. They have never learned the language of heaven, and now it is too late. 
A life of rebellion against God. Remember we talked about earlier, those who reject the spirit of truth, what happens in them? Hearts are hardened. Conscience is seared. Okay? Life of rebellion against God has unfitted them for heaven. Its purity, holiness, and peace would be torture to them. The glory of God would be a consuming fire. There's your lake of fire raining out through the whole earth. They would long to flee from that holy place. They would welcome destruction that they might be hidden from the face of him who died to redeem them. The destiny of the wicked is fixed by their own choice. Their exclusion from heaven is voluntary with themselves and just and merciful on the part of God. Do you see how design law brings all the pieces together? It fits perfectly with a God who we can trust. Notice how all reality works. God grants each person complete freedom to choose their own destiny. No one is kept out of heaven by God, not one. They are all kept out by themselves. And God doesn't determine the fate of anyone. God does not sit up in judgment looking over record books and deciding who's going to be saved and lost. That's human penal lie. Every person's fate is decided by their own choice. And it's a reality of the condition. Your choice is either open your heart to God where he brings power to heal you and restore you. You don't heal yourself. You simply choose to trust him and cooperate with him. Now assume that you are saved in heaven and you're on the walls of the new Jerusalem and you have a loved one that is lost. Does it make a difference to you? Will it make a difference to you? In your ability to love and trust God, in your joy and peace, and then hereafter, if your loved ones are lost because God keeps them out because they didn't claim the proper legal payment for their sins and therefore God uses his power to torture and kill them, or God actually wants them in, but they hate everything about God and God's kingdom of love and truth and choose to die eternally rather than be united with God, and those who love truth and love. Does it make a difference to you which way it happens? In your joy in the hereafter. Yes, you will never have peace, never have joy, if you actually think that other thing. Even if it were true, which it's not. How about this? Would it make a difference to to you to see with your own eyes that your loved ones are kept out because they don't want to come in. The gates are open. God invites them. They're free, but they won't do it. Versus God never raises them again. And he simply tells you, trust me, they didn't want to be here. Which gives you greater certainty, confidence, and erases with, fin- f- with a final eraser all doubt in your mind? God declaring it to be so or God letting each person reveal the reality of why they're outside. Yes, this is why God raises them. People say, why does he do it? He doesn't want them to suffer, but he truly runs his universe on truth, love and freedom. The only way to win. All these theologians and doctrines that teach anything else are misrepresenting God's character and delaying his coming. Well, there's several other things I want to get into. The lesson states in the fourth paragraph, I think we ought to get into this. Millions, a million years, even a billion years, might not possess enough good memories to make up for the bad. Eternity alone can balance all things out and then some. Does this sound right to you? Or does some part of this sound quite, quite harmful and wrong. Ellen White wrote, uh, after all of trials and tribulations, we get to heaven, uh, that we will say heaven is cheap enough at any cost. Heaven is for us. No matter what we went through, no matter what. But do you agree with that? Heaven is cheap cheap enough? or, Or do you think that in some way that there's this idea that it takes God an eternity to balance things out, to make up to us for the bad that we suffered? Is there any making up? Does this imply that God needs to make something up to us? 
that, that we've had some wrong done to us that isn't fair in this world and that God needs an eternity to restore and make up and balance the debt. Do you think God owes a debt to anyone? How about a child who gets molested? This is what happens under the imposed law. A child gets molested, and they didn't do anything wrong to deserve that what horrible happened to them, the horrible treatment. They are an innocent. It isn't their fault. So God will make it up to them. Or Christ's followers go about doing good, blessing others, helping the needy. They get imprisoned, persecuted, tortured, martyred. They didn't do anything to deserve what happened to them. God will spend eternity making it up to them. Does this sound right or wrong to you? It's definitely wrong. It's corrosive. It's wrong. The from that is that memories will be erased, and we will eventually, after a billion years or eternal years, we just won't have any memory of sin, won't have any memory of its, of its destructiveness, will have no memory of those who... Well, that could be done more quickly, but... Yeah. But, yeah. but that aspect of it, too. But the idea of balancing... Okay, making up. I, I really think this is personal. I want to show you why. In light of design law and how reality works. Design law is always how reality works. Um, God is not indebted to anyone. We're indebted to him. Let me ask you a question. It may sound tricky, so think it through carefully. I, I've never asked a trick question here before. <laughs> are you and I, you and I, you, 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 the person you are, the individual that I am, are we... Worse off because Adam sinned than we would have been had they never sinned. <laughs> Don't answer, Russell. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Are you and I worse off? Your reflex was to say yes, right? Then we would have been had and Eve not sinned. Well, let's be clear. Adam and Eve sinned with sin. It was wrong. No justification for it. Humanity, the species, would be infinitely better off had Adam and Eve stayed loyal. Had Adam and Eve stayed loyal, there'd never been any death on earth, and there would have never been any suffering and a disease and uh, exploitation and war. All the horrors that have happened would have never happened on earth had Adam and Eve. Let's be very clear about that. But do you understand how reality works? Have Adam and Eve not sinned, you and I would not exist. Get your mind around that. You and I, the individuals that we are, we would never have been born had Adam and Eve not sinned. We are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. The people that we are, our identities, our individualities, would not have happened. Follow your family tree back. See how many events in your family tree only happened because of some sin. There was a war, and in that war, my great-great-great-grandfather was shipped over, and he met this woman over in another country who became my grandmother. Had that war not happened, they would have never met. Well, war doesn't happen in a sinless world. That's just a simple example. You could go on and on and on of the evils that have occurred. Here's one. Consider King David. Was King David better off for the genocide that happened at Jericho? Or was he personally worse off? for it? Or is he benefited by it? Well, you understand the genocide led to Rahab uh, hiding the spies, which led to Rahab uh, being taken into Israel. And she ends up the wife of Salmon, who ends up the mother of Boaz, which is the great-great-grandmother. And she's the great-great-grandmother of King David. Had the genocide at Jericho never happened, David never gets born. Because David, the person that became David, could only be David with his great-great-grandmother being Rahab. Any other woman that marries Salmon, you have a completely different genetic line, and it's not David anymore. It's somebody else. Are these concepts hard or like mind-boggling? Many people don't think on this level, but I'm going to tell you there's a corrosive idea built in here that somehow we... And So how does this go back to what I'm saying here? Once Adam and Eve broke trust with God, the only types of children they could have were children in their own image. They could not give birth to sinless children. They could only give birth to children born in sin and conceived in iniquity. That's the only children they could give birth to, which is all of us since them. And that's why Jesus came and committed himself to be the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Earth's entire history is that plan of salvation. While sin and the human race as a species would have been better off, we, I exist only because 
of that sin happening. And I'm grateful to God that his mercy and grace allowed. You understand Adam and Eve rightly would have died right there in Eden had God's grace not stepped in and commit Christ to be their savior. And if Adam and Eve died in Eden, there'd be no humans. And if there are no humans, okay, so get your mind around what I'm saying. Any suffering we have on this earth from any person since Adam and Eve only happens because God's grace has permitted human life to continue and the Savior to come to save us. Adam and Eve should have died and no children should have been born if you would have just allowed them to reap. It would be kind of this way. Adam and Eve both took cyanide pills and God intervened and suspended their immediate death and allowed them to have children and then brought his son to fix the actual condition so that anybody who partakes of his son will also not die of that condition that we're born with. But had he not intervened, Adam would have died and no humans would have been born. That's reality. Yes, no? Apply that to other things you're hearing in society today. (laughs) I won't go any deeper than that. But just apply it about people claiming generational sin or things like that, that they are personally worse off as an individual. Again, am I justifying Adam Eve's sin? Am I saying it's a good thing? Am I saying that it should have happened? That No, I'm just saying the reality is that I wouldn't exist had it not happened. That's reality. It's not a justification. It's not making it righteous. It's not making it good. David in the in the, the story of uh, Jericho, all the uh, killing of the, it's not just the killing of the soldiers. They killed every human being, babies and women in there too. This was genocide. That's not a good thing. Is genocide a good thing? It's not a good thing. But without that, David doesn't exist. David personally was was better off as an individual than he would have been because he wouldn't have existed. If David didn't exist with Christ. And without David, the whole line of Christ doesn't happen. So the point I'm making here is there's a very superficial level of thinking that points to some event in history that was bad and says because that bad event happened millennia ago, therefore we are worse off for it. You have to have a little deeper discernment than that and actually ask the question, would you even exist personally as an individual to complain? If some of these events hadn't transpired, a lot of uh, a lot of deep thinking to do. It doesn't justify evil when it occurs. I didn't even get to in, go into the the uh, beauty of the hereafter and some of the um, descriptions people have made about what heaven might be like that are in the notes. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, and we ask that you will uh, send your Spirit of Truth to bring us to a knowledge of our own condition that we will be sensitive to the spirit of truth and love. We will acknowledge and humble ourselves before you as sinners in need of your grace and healing, that we will not resist and harden our hearts, that we will be transformed and allow you to write your design laws back into the most deep places of our being and restore us back into perfect union with you and make us effective in sharing a message of love into this world that can bring unity when there's so much division in the world around us. We pray in your holy name. Amen.